Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Johnny. I'm really excited about this morning. Um, I've genuinely got a real sense of anticipation this morning. Before I even get into what I'm going to talk about, I really believe that God has something for all of us this morning. Some of you have received that already in the worship and the praise that's gone on. Some of you is yet to come. And just as we were standing there, I had this real sense. Of, you know, that the Bible talks about no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can know the things that God has in store for those who love him. Right, when you woke up this morning, Your eye hadn't seen, your ear hadn't heard, your heart didn't know what God has in store for you this morning. But he has something in store for you this morning that he is desperate and he delights in revealing to you. So can I encourage you, just find something this morning, some nugget, something out of God's word this morning that speaks to you. May speak to a situation, may speak to your character, may speak to what you're going through at this moment in time. But there is something here for you that God wants to say to you this morning. But I want to start by introducing you to attention. And attention, uh, this, I say introduce you because actually this is attention that needs no introduction. This is attention that you will be very familiar with. This is attention that actually um, you will probably have struggled with or wrestled with is probably more appropriate for a significant portion of your life. If you're like me, you have str- wrestled with it at many, many points throughout your life, sometimes many, many points throughout the day. Okay? This is attention that is integral to the way that society works. This is attention that we have built political systems on. We've built financial systems on. We've built commercial systems on. There are business plans, countless business plans, that are all designed to take advantage of this tension that exists in the world around us. It's attention that you may not even consciously think about or recognize or be aware of, but is there. In fact, it is shouted at you day after day after day, 24 hours a day by politicians, by by adverts, by radio presenters, sometimes by friends and family. It is something that you will be living with and wrestling with a huge amount. And that is the tension between what I have and what I want. Everyone know this tension? Yeah, you know this tension. We know this tension because we grow up with this tension. It kind of starts as a child. Child psychologists think around two, two and a half, give or take, we develop the concept of ownership. Before, that's, that's ownership as in I recognize what is mine and not yours. Okay, before that, everything is kind of communal and it work, falls into two categories. It's either nice and you go, ooh, or it's yucky and you go, bleh. And you have that kind of alternate reaction between the two. And that is a standard feedback mechanism that's built into all of us, usually originating around the things that we need. So children have a very well-developed feedback mechanism for telling you what they need and when they, sometimes not what they need, just when they need it. Uh, At a very early age, they don't actually understand what they need at all. They just know something is not right and I need something and my care provider needs to provide it for me. And so they have this really well-developed feedback mechanism. About two and a half, we develop this this, this understanding of actually there are some things in life that are mine and there are some things that aren't yours. And that's when children start to... If you take something that is theirs, they start to kick off about that because... Not because they need it and they want it, because it's theirs and not yours. So toys become their toys and not your toys. Between two and a half and about three to four, 
They reckon that you have this development of this understanding that actually there are things that belong to other people as well. Before that, you only understood that things belong to you. About three, four-ish, you start to understand that things belong to other people. And most, most importantly, you place a value on that ownership, so on somebody else's ownership. So you recognize that that belongs to them, and therefore I shouldn't take it, because it's not mine, it's theirs. Interest, like I say, we start with our ownership, then we move on to other people's ownership. And there are experiments that have been done where you take things away from children and measure the amount of outrage that occurs. Um, and so what we find, even in that kind of three to four years, is that we have a higher degree of outrage for things that are taken from us than we have moral outrage for things that are taken from other people. So I can observe that someone has taken something from my friend. It's theirs. They shouldn't have taken it. And I am slightly morally outraged that it's been taken from them. But if it's taken from me, There's a huge amount of response. And it's funny how we, we don't really grow out of that. I, think, I don't know about you. I find when I hear things on the news of things that have happened to other people, I'm sad about that. And I, and I find myself kind of being morally outraged about that. But I'm in no way as connected to that moral outrage as I would be if it happened to me. That's why the people that you find who are so passionate in general, not exclusively, but in general, the people that are so passionate about righting societal wrongs are the people who have had those wrongs done to them or somebody that they love. Because we have this inbuilt kind of moral outrage that goes along with what happens to me and not what happens to somebody else. And it starts, like I say, with that understanding of need. There are things that I need in life and there are things that I want in life. What happens as we go through life is that need very, very quickly becomes superseded by want. So the things that I need, I'm generally kind of met, so long as we've had a relatively good upbringing, this is not exclusive, like I say, lots of generalizations going on here this morning, but the need becomes very quickly superseded by what I want. And that's because of the way that our brains work. So our brains respond and they reward us for things that feel good. They reward us for things that we enjoy. That's why when you do something that feels good, you get a release of chemicals in your brain and it gives you a response that's, oh yeah, I like that. I want some more of that. So we do that again and again. And at its worst, that's where addictions develop, where you start to get addicted into things that potentially aren't actually that healthy for us. But because our brains are rewarding that, then we change our behavior to focus purely on the things that we want. The reason that this tension exists in society is because most of us aren't living in that addiction or overt addiction kind of space. What we're doing is we're living in a way that actually the want and the things that we want and the constant kind of desire for more things that make us feel good, they're not overt addictions, but they do drive our behaviors and they drive what we choose to spend our time on, what we choose to spend our money on, what we choose to focus our attention on. And that's why we've built systems that take advantage of that. Because businesses know perfectly well that while you may not be addicted to their product, if you want it enough, and they can convince you that you want it enough, you'll probably spend some of your time and some of your energy on doing that. I'll give you a concrete, concrete example. Uh, my mobile phone is up for contract renewal in January. Um, 
And uh, is anyone anyone in that similar situation you find that you what happens when your mobile phone comes up for contract renewal? What do you start to receive on your phone? Multiple phone calls, texts, emails, smoke signals, carrier pigeons. Essentially, trying to communicate something along the lines of, Mr. Davis, would you like a new phone? I can see that your contract is up for renewal. Would you, have you considered our line of new phones? Now, I'll, I'll clarify this by saying that I don't need a new phone. I'm going on record. This is dangerous. I'm going on record here, right? I don't need a new phone. In fact, to an extent, and I'm not, you know, you make your own choices, right? But at this present moment in time, with the economic climate being what it is, it probably doesn't make sense for me to renew my contract in what will most likely be a more expensive contract than the one that I'm on now to get a brand new phone. It may make, may, may make more sense for me to actually keep the perfectly well-functioning phone that I've been happy with for the last two years and go for a SIM-only contract and pay significantly less, and then I can spend some money on something else. May. There's a caveat to that, because as I say, I'm being bombarded by texts and emails and carrier pigeons and various other things, all highlighting the new exciting features of the new phone that's recently come out, fruit-based phone, that's recently come out, that has all sorts of features that I didn't even know I needed, right? The new phone has a dynamic island. I don't even know what a dynamic island is. I didn't know that I needed one, but now I'm thinking, well, my phone doesn't have a dynamic island. What if I need a dynamic island, right? New phone's got a slightly bigger screen. My, my phone, my, well, my eyesight's going a little bit as you get older, for, for the, but... You know, my phone screen is looking a little bit small. I wouldn't have said that a couple of months ago, but it is looking a, a, little, bit, a little bit small. New phone's got 48 megapixel camera, right? I was happy. I was happy with my four megapixel camera that I had in 2003 because it took photos that I could see. And I could tell who the people in those photos were. With four, but now I need 48 megapixels. My phone doesn't have 48 megapixel camera. And before I know it, suddenly I'm not really that happy with my phone anymore. And I think, well, maybe I should, maybe I should get a new one. I don't need it, but I want it. And it's that tension between what I have and what I want that gets blurred. Because those boundaries get blurred. And if we're not careful, again, doesn't fall, I'm not addicted to buying new phones. That would be an entirely different issue. But it does potentially drive my behavior, particularly if I'm not consciously choosing and recognizing the influences on my life and what I can do about those influences, right? Because the boundaries get blurred. And that, if we're not careful, that happens in others. This is not just about phones. That can happen with relationships. You know, if you, you start look, looking around the world at all of the different people that are particularly online, and you think, you know, maybe I'm not happy in my relationship anymore because this person is projecting an image of their relationship where they're getting so much more out of their relationship than I appear to be getting out of mine. Or you can, you can see that in the car that you drive, the job that you work in, not even necessarily the job that you work in, the place that you work. You know, you start looking around and thinking, well, maybe the grass is greener somewhere else. And what I want needs to be satisfied. Incidentally, this is complete sidetrack, and I apologize, but did you know that it's a scientifically proven fact that the grass will always be greener when you look into your next door neighbor's garden? For those who are interested, that's because of the angle that you're looking at it. So when you look down on your grass, 
you see a certain number of blades of grass which make it look a certain shade of green. When you look that way at your neighbours, you're looking at an angle and you're seeing more blades of grass per square inch because you're looking through them, which makes it look greener. You know that? If you take away nothing else from this, no, that'll be the only, that'll be the only thing you remember from this morning if I'm not careful. But we have this tension between what we want and what we have. And that is not God's desire for us. Right? God's desire for us is not to constantly be yearning after the thing that we don't have. His desire is for us to be content. Right? Philippians 4, 11 to 12. Paul is talking to um, the church in Philippi, and he is closing his remarks in this letter. And he starts by saying, we don't have it in this verse, but he essentially starts by, by thanking the church for what they have done for him. But what he's saying is this. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, right? For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Right? Paul learned the secret. Of, some people are thinking, I didn't know it was a secret. It is a secret of being content in every circumstance. Does anyone want to learn that secret this morning? Right, if you can learn that secret, it will make such a difference to the way that you make choices in your day-to-day life. And I say this as someone who is in the process of learning that secret. Right? Like I say, I don't always make the right choices, and sometimes more often than I'd like to admit, I make choices based on what I want, regardless sometimes of the consequences. But I want to choose to make choices that are positive ones and are the right ones and that result in me actually being content in my life, not constantly yearning after what I don't have. So we're going to learn the secret this morning. You know, God's desire is that we should be content. We, we actually need to clarify what we mean by being content. Okay, because being content is not the same thing as always being happy. Right? We often fall into that trap of thinking, well, if I'm not happy, I'm doing something wrong. Particularly when you read verses like this. Right? You think, well, if I'm not happy all the time, then I must be doing something wrong. I must be making the wrong choice. That is not true and that is not the case. Life is not about being happy all the time. Okay? Jesus was angry. Jesus cried. Jesus grieved. Jesus mourned. Jesus went through really difficult life situations and felt those emotions. He was not happy all the time. What he was, was content in his place with the Father, in his relationship with the Father. And there's a difference and a distinction between the two. Contentment um, is not also about never yearning for anything, okay? It's biblical to have desires. It is biblical to yearn for things. It is biblical to desire to see change, to see improvement in the world around you. Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God knows that you have desires. He knows that some of those desires aren't yet met. He wants to meet those desires. So being content is not about not having desires. It's also not about purely being happy. What it is about is about finding your place in your relationship with God. 
because actually those desires are not unhealthy. What's often unhealthy is how we choose or try to meet those desires, how we try to satisfy those desires, because we choose to fill that space in us with something other than Jesus. And that will never satisfy. It will never do what we want it to do. Because what the, Jesus came that we may have life in all its fullness, right? That life in all its fullness is not full because it's full of stuff. It's not full because it's full of money. It's not full because it's full of granting earthly desires. It is full because it is full of him. Jesus came that we may have life in all its fullness. To fill your life with Jesus, to fill your life with the Holy Spirit. And in that, it means that the, the issue is not all the stuff. The issue is our relationship with the Father and the relationship with Jesus. So, we need to learn the secret of being content in every situation, whether in plenty or in want. So how do we do that? Okay. Very practical. First thing that's really helpful, and this is what we're doing this morning a little bit, is change perspective. Okay? You have to change the way that you see the world around you. You have to change the way that you see some of these tensions and some of these dilemmas. And this is an issue that's laced with traps. Okay? There's two things that Paul says in his verse. He says, I'm, when I'm living in plenty and living in want. Right? Most of us relate to the living in want quite a lot. We don't relate to it in the same way that people living in some other countries around the world do. And it's important to have that perspective, to recognize how much we have, recognize the privilege that we have, recognize the, the, um, the huge amount of wealth that exists in this country that if you actually think about it, can be really humbling and incredibly powerful in itself. Because that puts us in a position where we have the potential to impact other people and to help other people. And so that question of what do we do with our wealth is an interesting one just from that perspective. But most of us day to day, we think about things in terms of living in want. Okay, So the secret of being content when we live in want. If you were to think about it, most of us would potentially have the thought of, well, that's not a secret. I know what I need to be content when I'm in want. What I need is a little bit more. Right? How, if I was to ask you the question, how much money do you need to be content? Most of us, gut reaction, a bit more. Doesn't matter what's in your bank account, I just, I just need, need a bit more. Now, if you don't think that consciously, I bet it drives your behavior. It's an interesting thought when you think about what are the choices that I make and what do I do with my money? Often, we want a higher salary. We want a better job. We want to, because actually what the world tells us, certainly what social media tells us, is that what you need to be happy is a little bit more. How much thinner do you need to be to be happy? A little bit more? And that drives behavior. It drives things that we don't even think about. You know, how much fun do you need to have to be content? How many extreme sports do you need to take up to be content? Oh, just, 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 a, just a few more. How much healthier do you need to be to be content? Well, just, just a, a little bit more. It's, a, it's an interesting one. And this is the lie of social media, right? Azarankin um, is the creator of something called Infinite Scroll. Has anyone come across Infinite Scroll as a concept? You have, I promise you, you have. Okay. Do you remember, if you, for those who've been using social media for some time, if you think about using Facebook, if you were to go back 10 years, might be 15 now, um, when you used Facebook, you had to 
um, scroll down the page, you scroll through everybody's posts, and you got to a point where it stopped. And it said, next page at the bottom. And you clicked next to see more. Anyone remember that? You still get it on some, some things like if you went on B&Q's website. You'd get 20 results, and then you have to click more to see, see them all right. Infinite scroll is what put paid to that on social media. Infinite scroll is the reason that you can sit on your phone and just scroll and scroll and scroll. And it constantly refreshes, constantly feeds you more material. And, you, and that's, that's where people... Have, do we have people in this room? I don't know if you want to admit to this. Do you have people in this room who potentially, you know, you lose minutes? hours, potentially just kind of scrolling. It's not even stuff you're interested in. It's not, you know, the algorithm has determined that this is things that you're interested in. Half the time it really isn't. And, but you just, you keep, right, as a ranking is the guy who invented that. He invented the prospect of being able to scroll continually. Since that invention, which I think was about 2011, since that invention, he has had a revelation of understanding about social media and the potential damage that it can do in that constant, never-ending stream because of the way that companies can take advantage of that and spin what comes up in front of you in that constant loop to try and direct your thinking into either a positive or a negative way. So if you want to look into some of Azarankin stuff, it's really interesting. But the quote that I want to read to you is this says this, one of the most pernicious aspects of social media is that you're getting constant and infinite validation that people like you more when you look a little different than you actually do. When you're living a life that isn't quite your real life, you're getting quantified proof that people like you more when you're projecting who you are. That's what social media does. Because if you think about it, you project the image that you want to see into the world, and people quite literally like it. And you get this constant validation that actually people like you more when you project that image into the world than who you actually are behind the screen. That is the lie of social media. Because it is a lie, and it's, this is what I mean about changing perspective. It's important to recognize the lie in the behavior but it doesn't always alter the way that we behave and the way that we do it. Because the reality is, and this is trap number one, the reality is when you are living in want, you will never have enough to satisfy that desire. Because the little bit more shifts. Every time you gain what you thought you needed, actually you'll want a little bit more. Because you're placing your desire in the wrong thing. Your desire is not for more money. Your desire is not for a better job. Your desire is not for a nicer house or a nicer car. Your desire, at the very core of who you are, whether you recognize it or not, your desire is for Jesus. And by trying to fill it with other stuff, that is the root of discontent. When you're living in want. When you're living in plenty, there's trap number two. Now, we don't have an issue with living in plenty, most of us, because we're so fixated on the want, right? So we often look at this and think, well, why does that even need to be there? It's very specifically in the verse, I've learned to be content in every situation, whether in want or in plenty. So plenty is as much of an issue as want. Why is plenty as much of an issue? Because plenty drives want in other people. Let me give you a scenario. You wake up tomorrow morning and someone has given you, dropped into your bank account, a hundred billion pounds. Right, that's a big enough number for some of us really to struggle with the concept. That is, think about your current account balance now and add 11 zeros on the end. Right? 
Wealth psychology, which is a real field, wealth psychology tells us that actually for the vast majority of us, dropping 100 billion pounds into your account tomorrow, while today you might think would solve all your problems, actually would be catastrophic for most of us in our entire lives. The reason being, suddenly, everything changes. At the moment, your decision-making process, let's take, for example, if you decide where you want to go for lunch, right? Your decision-making process is usually based on where can I go, what can I do, how much can I afford to spend, and therefore, within those boundaries, that's what, I, what do I want to do. So if I know the choices are McDonald's, Subway, I don't know, I'm struggling to think of a third. That's the power of advertising for you. Um, KFC, right. Those are your options, okay? So what the, your decision-making process is based on can. If I drop 100 billion pounds into your account tomorrow, can is removed entirely. Because suddenly you can do anything. You can do whatever you want. You could fly to Paris and have lunch in Paris, a Michelin-starred restaurant. But when you open up can and remove can completely, all you are left with is want. What do you want to do? Because you can do anything. And want is never satisfied. Because whatever you choose, you would be thinking about the things that you could have done but didn't choose to do. And when you can do anything, you're faced with the reality that you can't do everything. And so all that's left is want. And so that issue of being content is just as much of an issue if you have 100 billion pounds in your account than if you have what you have today. Now, that, I'm not saying that in a way that we should all feel sorry for the billionaires. This is not that kind of message. But actually, you know, Jesus tells a story of how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes things are a bit more complex than we think, but I won't go into that. The issue remains the same. The desire for what we want is not satisfied. And I really need to speed up because I'm running. <laughs> so this is the thing. Right? I have to change my perspective. I have to recognize that I will never have everything that I think I need. Because I don't actually need what I think I need. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need and has already planned to give it to you. I have to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether living in plenty or living in want. Philippians 4, 11 to 12, we've read. Verse 13, right? So we've gone through. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. This is that secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Whether it's plenty or want, whether it's hungry or well-fed, I can do it all through him who gives me strength. One translation says, through Christ who strengthens me. You know, when we're living in plenty, or sorry, when we're living in want, often the temptation is to focus on what will satisfy that need. Actually, where we need to place our focus is on Jesus. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. You know, with not getting your needs met, not getting your desires met, is your go-to place what the world says it should be? Is your go-to place the latest thing that social media says that you need? Or is your go-to place Jesus? Because that is where your desire will be met. It will be met nowhere else. When you're living in plenty, is my instinct to put God on the shelf until I need him? 
and to enjoy what I've got in front of me when actually that desire is never met until I find it in Jesus. We have to change our perspective. Second thing that we have to do, we have to change our focus. So you change your perspective. Think, change the way that you think about the decisions you make and the world that is around you. Change your focus. Did you know that your attention is your most precious resource? If you don't believe me, think about how much time, effort, and money goes into grabbing your attention from you day after day after day. Last year, 20, not last year, 2021. We haven't got figures for last No, this is 2022. Last year. I know what year I'm in. 2021, right? Last year, companies in the UK alone spent over £39 billion on advertising. Right? £28 billion of that went on social media advertising alone because of infinite scroll, because of that constant grabbing of your attention. Your attention is one of the most precious things that you own. How much consciously do you choose where you place it? Because I know if, if I think about me, I don't consciously choose where my attention goes a lot of the time. I'm driven by what is in front of me and what is brought up in front of my phone, what I see when I drive down the road. I don't always constantly choose where I place my attention. But we can choose our focus. Right? Howard Rheingold says this. says, attention is a limited resource. You cannot pay attention to everything in your life. It's a limited resource. So pay attention to where you pay attention. That will change your week. If you consciously think about where am I placing my attention. Right? Hebrews 13 5 says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So keep your life free of the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God will never leave you or forsake you. It doesn't matter how much money is in your account. God will never leave you or forsake you, whether in plenty or in want. Matthew 6, 31 to 34, Jesus says this. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first Jesus and his righteousness. You know, what does that mean? It means we have to recognize it's not about what we have plenty want whatever right that's irrelevant it doesn't matter Jesus is the point Jesus is the focus what matters is your relationship with Jesus what matters is your relationship with the father remember I caveated this by saying this is a journey that I am on because I don't make these decisions right all the time but it's a journey that we can learn and develop and learn the secret. You know, we need a relationship with the one who is able to meet all of our needs. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. At this moment in time, Paul in 2 Corinthians is, is struggling with a personal issue. He's wrestling with a personal challenge. But God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God is enough for you. Jesus is enough for you. 
If you can understand that and have that revelation, if, if I can understand that and have that revelation, it changes the way that I see the world. It changes my behavior because I'm not constantly seeking after the things that the world tells me I need. God is enough for you. Do you know, if we, if we live where we're constantly trying to meet that need with other things, we're not that much different in the way that we live our lives from the pharaohs in ancient Egypt building up treasures and possessions that they were going to be buried with so that they could, they believe, take them with them. Right? You can't take anything with you when you go. You can't. Jesus is enough for you because Honest, brutally honestly, at the end of your life, Jesus will be all that you have. Which is actually good news. Because contrary to what the world believes, Jesus is all that you need. He will be all that you have, but he is all that you need and will ever need. We need to change our perspective and change our focus. You know, only God is able to satisfy so we change our perspective, we change our focus. Last thing, we need to choose practically, week to week, day to day, we need to choose what is better. Jesus um, visits, there's a story in, in uh, Luke 10 about Jesus visiting a, um, a village, visiting a house with a couple of sisters who live in there called Mary and Martha. It's a very short passage in the Bible. But it's this, Jesus and his disciples were on their way and came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, many of you will be familiar with this story, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She was doing everything that she thought needed to be done at that moment in time. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. How many people feel worried and upset about many things day to day, week to week? Only, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. The secret of being content in every circumstance. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. What did she do? She sat at the feet of Jesus. We need to choose what is better. We need to choose to sit at the feet of Jesus. You know, I want to learn to stop being so worried and upset about many things. I want to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus. Psalm 27 verse 4 says this, here's the one thing I crave from Yahweh, from God. The one thing I seek above all else. I want to live with him every moment in his house, beholding the marvelous beauty of Yahweh, filled with awe, delighting in his glory and grace. I want to contemplate in his temple. You know, what's the one thing that you crave from God? Right here and now, this morning, what is the one thing that you crave from God? We need to crave, desire, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to dwell in his house, to dwell in his temple, every moment beholding the marvelous beauty of Yahweh. You know, I want to learn how to do that. 
Psalm 27, further down, 13 to 14, says this. Yeah, I believe with all my heart that I will see again your goodness, Yahweh in the land of life eternal. Here's what I've learned through it all. Don't give up. Don't be impatient. Be entwined as one with the Lord. Be brave and courageous and never lose hope. Keep on waiting for he will never disappoint you. Sometimes knowing what we need to do is difficult because we don't see how to do it and we get it wrong. Right, if you get it wrong this week, if you choose this week to choose what is better, to sit at the feet of Jesus, but you get it wrong, we're all going to get it wrong. This, don't give up. Don't be impatient. Be entwined as one with the Lord. Be brave and courageous and never lose hope. You know, keep on waiting. He won't disappoint you. If you change your perspective, change your focus, choose what is better, some days you'll get it right. Some days you get it wrong. But if you don't give up, you don't be impatient, you don't lose hope, he will not disappoint you. Because only God is able to satisfy. You know, we're going to sing in a minute. I'm just going to pray for you. But can I encourage you this week, just choose what is better. Father, I thank you that you don't disappoint us. God, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. Father, that you are with us in every circumstance, in every situation, whether in plenty or in one. Jesus, I pray that you teach us the secret of being content in you, in your presence. And Father, I pray that as every person goes out of here this morning, Father, that you bless them. And Father, you go with them. Father, that you help us this week to choose what is better.